It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Robert Sable grew up in London and developed an affinity for German air-cooled motors working on vintage Porsches with his father. After he moved to the United States, his passion turned to air-cooled motors on motorcycles when he fell into a R75-5 as part of a deal to buy a Porsche 911. That purchase, in turn, helped launch Roughchild Motorcycles in 2014. Roughchild's custom builds might best be described as an Airhead 247 reimagined with modern technology, built to exacting standards without compromise. Think of a Singer Porsche 911 as an automotive analogy. And Robert has a real love for the 247, not just in custom-built form. I think you'll hear that in our visit this week. It's Robert Sable of Rough Child Motorcycles on the Airhead 247 Podcast. We're on the phone with Robert Sable, uh, who is the founder, uh, head honcho, head builder uh, for Rough Child uh, and is it, what do we call it, MotorWorks, Roughchild Moto? Am I, what am I missing there in the moniker? Uh, you know what? Um, a couple of years ago, we dropped it to just Roughchild. Uh, business consultants and people wearing other hats telling me how to improve my business. We dropped it. What's the origin, so rough, rough what's the origin of, the, of the moniker to begin with? Oh, uh, that's a long story. Um, goes back to my earlier days uh, floating around Europe, and um, I was referred to as rough child because I was in fancy, bougie places, but with no money. And it was someone's dad who was like, this guy's more rough child than Rothschild. And uh, yeah, it stuck. Okay, so a moniker you picked up traveling. So that's interesting. So you're saying you found yourself uh, in high-class places, restaurants, <laughs> ports of call yeah. without necessarily the wallet to match? Absolutely, yeah. Good for you. Well, get, so tell me about that. I, I didn't know that was your background. So I'm gathering you're not, you live in Los Angeles now. Uh, you're not an L.A. native. I think I'm pretty comfortable saying that. So... Oh, yeah. Where, yeah, where, how, without going too far back, how did that wanderlust and traveling translate in, uh, to what you're doing now motorcycle-wise? Is there a relation? Yeah. Um, so born and raised in London, and through my adult years, I, you know, went through that journey of self-discovery and found myself floating around Europe doing fun things, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and... I found myself at the Cannes Film Festival in the south of France where I met my now wife and mother to my child. She, uh, Isabel, she came back to London with me for a couple of days and 
you know, he was like, yeah, you know, this is nice and everything, but we should go back to L.A. I have a, you know, I'm all set up, like, come and stay, see if you like it. So inevitably, I came with nothing, and I never went back. Wow, so that was kind of like par for the course for you back then. Show up uh, and just make a go of it, and so it stuck. Yeah, and it was strange, you know. Like, I came to L.A., I'd always, like, you know, I, I knew vaguely what to expect, but I didn't appreciate the... Uh, the car culture that existed here, just the vintage scene, cars and motorcycles. And I was just kind of shocked that you could buy these old vehicles that weren't rusty, were very much repairable. And like when I moved here, everything was cheap. People didn't appreciate 60s Porsches and, and, and airheads. It was just, everything was cheap and it was the stuff that I wanted. So, I was I was buying stuff like crazy. Like I, at one point, I had fifteen old Porsches, and you know, was just kind of like fixing up a ratty car and driving it, and just keeping it on the road. And the same with the bikes. Like I wasn't doing full restos. I was just buying bikes and fixing them and and enjoying it. And sort of where I've where I've ended up now is I never envisaged like pursuing this it just grew every year into something more and i'm just trying to keep it as uh professional as possible and you know i'm sort of creating my own business model around uh, a hobby really yeah well so it sounds like it's really grown organically which <clears throat> excuse me is uh is, is how how you want those things to go let's go back a little bit let's Timestamp. So, what year did you move uh, to Los Angeles? Two thousand and eight. Oh, okay. So uh, that's relatively recent. Yeah, it was beautiful too because I was coming here with English pounds, and then two thousand and eight with the property crash and the economy just going nuts. I, I moved here. And I was like, I can't believe that Los Angeles is so cheap. Why doesn't everyone live here? <laughs> yeah, and as you mentioned, that was a good time, probably. I'm not as much into the uh, collector or classic car scene as I am motorcycles, but uh, as you mentioned, that was probably a, one of the the last of the really. It was like a two. Yeah, there was a two year window there yeah, where yeah. I was I was picking up cars for sub ten thousand dollars, and those cars now are two hundred. Yeah, exactly. So you really got in on the last. I don't want to say the last good buys, but. That might be those kind of prices and those kind of bargains. It might be a while before we see that in any kind of vehicle. Oh, for sure. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I was already, I'm the, my dad was a racing driver and restored cars as a hobby. So I'd already cut my teeth on what to look for in a car. So when I, and, and motorcycles too, obviously. And uh, whenever I was shopping, I was always shopping the seller as much as the vehicle. So buying vehicles from enthusiasts that had looked after them, it was remarkable that anyone would part with it. And that's what I just, what sort of dumbfounded me back in the day. Yeah, you know, you bring up a great point there, looking, uh, shopping the seller just as much. Uh, this is kind of a bad analogy, but it still rings true to a certain degree. I have some younger friends when I say younger, you know, college age uh, buddies, fellas that I know, and they always ask me, Hey, you know, Darren, 
I'm looking around at some bikes, you know, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? You know, they're just looking to get a, you know, a Honda shadow or something like that. And the first thing I always tell them is the picture will tell you a lot, especially in a online ad. So if you see, especially where the part of America where I live here in the, in the Ozarks, you know, you'll see a, a rusty baby carriage, a pile of beer cans and something in the background of the photo. That's yep. probably not a bike you're going to want to buy. So I un <laughs> I understand clearly what you're saying there, shopping the seller. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, and you know, we're in that day and age, too, where we're like, we're using the published images mm -hmm. so much to, to form an evaluation on what we're buying. And I, I'm buying motorcycle sight unseen every week. Like, and you can tell, you can tell everything you need to see from three pictures and I'll transact, you know, as long as the seller doesn't say anything alarming on the telephone, like he's getting the money. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Now you mentioned, uh, your father, uh, was into racing and I wanted to <clears throat> just find out a little bit more about your background and other interests that tie into what you do. Uh, with cars and motorcycles. So I guess it's fair to say your dad played a part of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, he definitely sparked the uh, the interest. He gave me the disease. Um, it was just strange, like, because he, he raced uh, for Honda in the Touring Car Championship, but he always kept me pretty distant from it. And I think it was, in hindsight, it was him resisting to include me in it, which led me to embrace it so much when I became independent and had my own means to do it. The first thing I wanted to do was buy tools and stuff and take it apart. And I very much learned from just, you know, buying good things, taking them apart, and then having to put it back together. Now, is, uh, is, which, your, is your father still around? Oh, yeah, he's still around. He's in, he's in England, so we, we don't get to see each other that much. Do you stay in uh, touch on occasion? I mean, he knows what you're doing now? Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I have a, a one-year-old daughter, so they were over here recently to, to meet the baby. Uh, once the COVID restrictions died down, they were, they were on the first flight. So that's interesting, though. You mentioned there, and as I kind of rudely interrupted, though, you, you mentioned he kind of kept you away from it uh, for whatever reason, but that only served to draw you maybe closer to it. He's the sort of guy that would, I'd be there eager to learn something and he'd go and ask me to find the tools that didn't exist in the back shed. <laughs> and, I'd be, and I'd go back there, and I'd be there for like half an hour embarrassed, I can't find this thing. And I'd go back and he's like washing his hands saying, hey, like, you know, supper's ready, let's go inside. Like, oh. So what did he just want to be left alone? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know what it was, but it, it certainly what got me into this. There's no denying it. And I just, I got in over my head with, I went in so much deeper than he ever imagined doing that it then required getting a shop. I got my shop in LA before I ever had a business. That was because I just bought so much stuff that I was getting in trouble at my apartment building for having stuff in the parking lot and down the street. And people were complaining about me being <laughs> out there doing stuff to these like vehicles all the time. I was like, damn, I need some space. So yep. I, I ended up getting a, uh, it's a 10,000 square foot, um, shop in downtown LA. Oh, good grief. And me, and a 
Yeah, me and a buddy got it because he was going through the same thing. And then slowly but surely, like, he got a job and he kind of disappeared and stuff grew. And and I still had the space and, and monetized it, and, and I stuck with it. Good for you. Now, I'm curious. So <clears throat> coming from London, uh, then all of a sudden you find yourself – here you are buying cars, motorcycles, uh, and, yeah. and quite a few. Tell me about what is, do a little compare and contrast of the buying, titling process, how, you know, of course, in England, you've got an MOT. Conversely, here where I live in Arkansas, you can title or uh, a rock if, it, uh, if it's got a turn signal on it. I mean, we're completely yeah, opposite. So give me a little compare and contrast there. Um, I would say that that compare and contrast applies to a lot of stuff when you compare America to England in general. Sure. And being the uh, free-spirited person that I am, I, I found very much that England doesn't want that in people. You're supposed to fit the mold and embrace the system. And as long as you comply, everything's good. Moving to the U.S., I found that it's, you know, it's not really like that. You can create something from nothing, and as long as you jump through the few hoops that there are, like titling, title it, insure it, pay us where we're due, you can do it. Yeah, I imagine not having the MOT looking over your shoulder was uh, a pretty big relief. You know, um, it is a big relief but also kind of knowing the standard that's required to pass an MOT. Yes. You keep that in your mind when you're doing something, and you're not going to go backwards. So my ethos has always been to do the highest quality so that the next guy that looks at it knows that, when you know, he knows that I did it, and I want him to think that it's fantastic. Interesting, yeah. Um there's that like that safety standard that's just kind of like built in. Yeah, interesting. I mean, you know, I think my experience with what uh, British MOT is is not unlike a lot of other Americans in that uh, I, I, you know, I saw Ed China bitching about it on an episode of Wheeler Dealers more than one time, and that you know that's really all I know. So, uh, but it's a pretty. Ex- I mean, it, it, go ahead. It's really not. A, it's not a bad thing. It's a basic safety check and making sure that the vehicle is roadworthy. I mean, it's pretty basic stuff. The other thing I've heard too, this is again, sort of compare contrast America with, uh, uh, great Britain or, or some European, uh, areas is that customization. A lot of Europeans will say is uniquely an American thing. Whereas you mentioned, we're talking about the MOT in England, uh, in other yeah. European countries, uh, you know, in Germany, there's a TUV. Uh, mm-hmm. Switzerland and other places, you really can't alter a vehicle at all uh, with yeah. it without uh, some strenuous oversight from the government, which, you know, that's completely opposite of what you're doing with, uh, with Roughchild. It's, it's funny, yeah. We've exported bikes to most of those places and... I haven't received the phone call from customers saying that there was a problem. So I'm assuming that everything went smoothly. <laughs> and quite a lot of the bikes have gone to Japan as well. That seems to be a big really? Yeah, many, many bikes. 
Huh. So I imagine if they're delivered and, and titled that way, uh, probably less of a problem as if you're actually modifying something that you've owned uh, for a period uh, yeah. of time. Absolutely. I don't know if that's some sort of like loophole that someone's figured out and, mm-hmm. and advertised because, you know, only from the online presence, I, I know there are shops in those places. So it's always like a little, it's a huge compliment, but also a little surprising that someone wants to take that risk of importing a custom motorcycle when you could buy it on home turf and like register the motorcycle before it's customized. So at least you get a couple of years out of it before <laughs> yeah. you're not allowed it. Yeah, that's right. Well, you mentioned Japan there. Uh, and, you know, one, one thing comes to mind when I think of Japan and I think of, of BMW. And it's, uh, I'm sure you're probably familiar with this in, in some regard, is 46 Works Shiro Akiyama. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell, me your impression, I mean, tell me your impressions of what he does. I, I've really been impressed. Yeah, I mean, I'm only familiar with the videos that have been published online. And right. The guy, the guy makes beautiful parts. I'm impressed that he's doing, he's a machinist by trade, I'm sure. And he's doing beautiful work, makes beautiful videos. I'm impressed that he shares it all on video because, you know, that's, I wouldn't want to share my, like, secret source to some of the bikes, you know. Um, I love it. He, he builds great bikes. I have no criticisms. Um, I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. Just wanted to get your thoughts there. All right, well, let's dig into uh, really the nuts and bolts here about what you do with Airheads. Um, I think the first time I might have become aware of, of you was probably maybe a bike you listed on Bring a Trailer or something, or I, I can't actually oh, no. recall, but the first one and I sort of got an idea of how you were reimagining uh, the airhead, the classic airhead. The first thing that came to mind to me, this may or may not be a fair comparison, is the singer Porsche. Mm-hmm. Uh, have people mentioned that as a comparison or a uh, something? Or, or do you have yeah. that aesthetic in mind? Was that something you knew of? Or it, what, is there a connection there anyway? Uh, so to answer the question, yes, absolutely. Okay. Uh, I have, I, um, I have friends that work at Singer. I've, I've sat down with Rob many times and sort of discussed the business model and sort of how to, how to navigate that space. Um, we're, we're both in the same part of the world. It's inevitable that we would be communicating. So he's in, uh, uh they're in Los Angeles too. Yeah, that's right. Okay, I didn't know that. Um, and yes, I'm a, I'm a I'm a Porsche guy that loves BMW motorcycles, so I'm more than aware of Singer, and I've always held them in the highest regard and something to like. I knew that when I was building these bikes in the beginning, they're the ultimate custom vehicles because they were always striving to be an OEM standard. So you sort of take that and run with it and you put it on, like, how, how are we going to do this with the BMW? You've got this 25-year span of motorcycle where the drivetrain will interchange with different frames. How do we modernize it and improve it and to, like put out this finished product that you can't tell whether BMW made it or 
this independent shop in California. And that's what you mean uh, by, and using the term OEM standard, that's what you mean by that? Yeah, like high-end finishes, durable, being accountable. Uh, for anyone that isn't aware, like a, a rough child motorcycle, we build everything from the frame up. So we'll start with a few donor bikes to produce one bike, strip it down to the frame, repair, reinforce, customize, refinish, upgrade. All the, the whole electrical system is custom and modern. We don't use any of the original parts for that. And then in the last couple of years, we've been updating the front forks, modern brakes, to just try and eradicate any uh, failure points on the bike. Sure, sure. To make it ultra-reliable, ultra ultra-safe, comfortable, and a true alternative to, like, an, I feel like an R90 is my biggest competitor, and <clears throat> in full defense of the R90, it's, it's a better motorcycle. It is turnkey-ready, it's cheap, it's fuel-injected, my problem with it is that it's not that fun. I kind of get on it, and it feels like an electric motorcycle. It does everything too well, and I feel like a passenger. That makes a lot of sense. And I was going to, you were reading my mind there, or I was thinking along the same lines uh, as, yeah, a, a 90 is kind of uh, the modern equivalent uh, to what you're to what you're building. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2 Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2 Valve have years of experience with the 247 airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2 Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both twin shock and post-81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step -step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two. Boxer2Valve.com. Well, let's, I, I want to go over uh, some of those uh, as time allows here, some of those things you mentioned, some of the components in particular, but let's just kind of start at the base here. What's an ideal donor bike uh, for you? I noticed on your website, so uh, folks want to inquire about a build. They can look and see all the different bikes you have there, what ones you've done in the past. But one of the things you mentioned is, you know, hey, you know, you can bring us a bike, but it might be better if we just go out and find what we need. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that more than, at least more than half of the bikes aren't local. 
for, for ordered bikes. So by the time you factor in transporting a uh, dilapidated donor bike to California, for us to then strip it and rebuild it, probably need another donor bike anyway. And then shipping your finished motorcycle back to you, it's, it's just cheaper and easier for us to source the donors here. Uh, and I always keep an inventory. There's maybe 20, 20 complete bikes kicking around at any point that can be used as donors. So that's basically, when we say donors, the main components we're talking about, engine, transmission, frame, uh, and maybe that's about it. What am I missing? And wheels, or maybe not even wheels. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so I, I like to buy complete bikes okay. in general. It's, it's just, uh, I'd say like a, a tired original bike that hasn't had too many hands on it is my favorite approach. Um, so yeah, in terms of what we actually use for the finished product, the mainframe, engine gearbox, final drive, we fabricate our own subframe. Uh, we, we use a, a short wheel based swing arm. So we inevitably source those independent to the donor bike. And then the whole front end is brand new. The wheel is custom made. We use the original rear hub. And then do a, a sealed bearing conversion on it. So it's, oh, that's nice. That's nice. Just like just again, trying to modernize everything to remove uh, any potential user error. So, what is your preferred sort of power plant? Uh, I, the the frames I don't think really differed a whole lot. Uh, I'm sure there oh, are. Yeah, you, yeah, you think that until you start digging in. And really? You, okay, tell me. Tell me. Well, the the main one to notice is the the jump from a uh, an R seventy five slash five the the rear reinforcement bar across the back. There's a it got so much bigger with the in seventy seven with the R one hundred RS. It's just you can you can even feel it in the weight of the frames. If you pick up a slash five frame and then pick up a slash seven, the slash seven is nearly double the weight. Really, they were using thicker thicker steel, more bracing. It's definitely a stiffer. Frame. Okay, I didn't know that. Uh, okay, so you're going to say slash seven or mid mid to late seventies frame and beyond. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ideal donor bike is probably a, a seventy seven R one hundred RS. Okay, so you it's like you like that motor? Oh, I love that motor. The, the trouble is, they're getting collectible. It's sort of <laughs> to top them up now. Yeah, right. I used to um, maybe five years ago. I remember there were. Six or seven R one hundred RS is here, seventy seven, and I, it was it was such a great donor bike because people were prepared to pay for parts for a seventy seven RS, but they didn't want to pay real money for the bike. So for me, it was ideal because if you scored a three quarter solo seat, that was a thousand bucks straight away anyway. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I've I've stripped and repainted many uh, original R one hundred RS. Gas tanks, which was probably not the best idea. Yeah, uh, you know. I never knew, you know. Yeah, right. Who knew? Yeah. Well, and I guess you could also say the the just the straight R one hundred S of that era would be comparable as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right, right. I mean, uh, they're they're all perfect donors. It's just real um, small nuances that that I get excited about with each different one. And inevitably, my customer doesn't necessarily 
No, they're not an expert in Airhead, so I try and gauge what they're interested in. For instance, I had a customer, it's the Olive bike that's on uh, on the website, mm-hmm. the R75 RSWB. Uh, the customer had uh, a 912 that had been prepared by John Benton, and I knew that he would understand in Porsche language when I would describe to him, I was like, you want an R75 slash five and we can put the big ball kit on it to make it a thousand CC, but it's got a much more raw feeling about it that feels like your 912. It's like a raw vibration that, that, that BMW worked to lose that. They wanted to smooth it out. But by the time you get to 81 with the lighter clutch pack and flywheel, like those engines hum along a lot smoother than the uh, early 70s stuff. But again, there's going to be a client that values one over the other, and you just got to kind of figure out who they are. That makes a lot of sense. So uh, before we move on from that, you did, I want to jump back, and you mentioned something interesting there. So you, um, I didn't want to just let you gloss over it. Did, you, did I hear you right? You maybe said that a lot of your customers aren't necessarily airhead enthusiasts, maybe to begin with? They're yeah, not... correct. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about that. They, um, I think my my main MO with the business is to sell a vintage motorcycle that is reliable and isn't going to leave you on the side of the road. So as much as I draw in the BMW crowd, I also draw in just vintage bike guys that want to try it. And... I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not aware of many resto mod motorcycle companies that are trying to do the same thing that we are. No, I don't think uh, there are a lot out there. No, no, and it's certainly a tough business model. I'm sure there's a lot easier things to do to make money, <laughs> but you know, um, I'm, I'm sticking with it. I got the bug. Let's go back and talk about uh, some of the component changes and things that you do you were just kind of running through those uh but if we could talk in just a little bit more detail about those and you know folks who go to your website you can see some of that uh what you're talking about a few of the big big items i know that you do and we may gloss over a few here uh your alternator uh alternators uh, are are changed so and your carburetors you've got a big bore kit and your suspension so Tell me a little bit about those sort of four components and what you're using and why. Yeah, so for the ignition system and the alternator, we're using Silent Hectic. They don't have a big presence in the U.S. I get it straight out of Germany. And I am just a fan of but the failure rate has been maybe like two in, in 400 bikes. It just doesn't fail. At least, oh, you know, I'm the proof will be in over time. And certainly, uh, I found that the most reliable modern electronic ignition with switchable curves. Uh, we like to twin plug the bikes too. Okay. Uh, it's been a, you can read for hours and hours, it's like Snowbum's website, you can read about twin spark and how people have struggled to, to set them up properly and whether it's really worth it. With the silent hectic ignition system set up for twin plug, Oh, it's it's wonderful. The bike feels like it's turbocharged. Really? Second into third. Yeah, the torque is just unbelievable. 
And, of course, it allows us to run the lithium battery. I know that uh, uh, the, the uh, Euromotor electric ignition kit, they've just updated there so you can do the lithium. Right. We like to hide the battery under the gas tank. It's just it's wild. The, the factory bikes just have a, a, a car battery there, you know? That's like... <laughs> Yeah, it's like a huge. It's, sort of disappear. Yeah, yeah, it's like a huge. It's like you know the weight of another transmission on top of it almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use the we use the Shari battery, and they're uh, two pounds. Wow. Versus the the factory twenty. Yeah, and when you're, I don't want to say you're dealing with you know minimal horsepower gains here, but they're not like supercharged car horsepower gains. So. Uh, you know, oh, it's hard. It, it is hard and expensive yeah. to get horsepower out of an airhead. Yeah, and, right. So uh, we, we do. Yeah, we deal closely with Richard Moore in England. Uh, More speed. He's done a bunch of cams for us, uh, cylinder work, head work. Uh, it does a thousand and one cc Nicosil barrel, which is nice. Um, and then Stephen Rock with their thousand cc big bore kits. That's pretty much. I would always advise someone to do that instead of the factory replacement pistons. Sure. Uh, but yeah, horsepower games is tough. And like we've we've done a few bikes, we'll dyno them, and we can get close to ninety horsepower at the rear wheel, which is uh, these guys that get more than that. I just don't know how they're doing it. <laughs> I was going to say that uh, that that puts it in perspective for me. I had uh, I just recently sold. I had a uh, uh, Scrambler 1200 uh, XE. Uh, oh, yeah. Which, very much so, which is about 95 horsepower, uh, yeah. g- give or oh, take. Well, you have, to be, you have to be about seven feet to ride it as well. <laughs> it's very tall, yes. Um, but, boy, if I can imagine that kind of horsepower and response uh, out of what I'm used to, you know, getting on an R90S or, a, or my RS or something like that, that's a big difference. Oh, yeah. I mean, most of these bikes came with 50 or 60 horsepower yeah. at the rear wheel. So, you know, it's a, it's a big jump. It just doesn't sound like a lot. Uh, okay, so alternator, ignition, silent, hectic. So, yeah, you know, I've seen those on some, you know, fringe German sites. But as you say, uh, not mm-hmm. really, not that you can't get them here in the States, obviously. Obviously, you can. It's just a matter of finding the supplier and, and ordering it. Uh, carburetors, you've gone uh, strictly to Makuni, is that right? Yeah, mainly a Makuni. I mean, we do Delortos too, and we'll rarely do a Bing. I like to warranty the bikes, and uh, <laughs> you're saying Bing I, doesn't know, Bing and warranty don't I, go well together. It's not good. I mean, <laughs> if my my customer, I my customer doesn't. I don't want to have to re. I don't want to re-educate my customer. And the truth is, is that like the modern people don't respect a carburetor. You got to turn your fuel taps off. They're going to leak. Like the thing's going to leak regardless. <laughs> and I just don't want that phone call blaming me. <laughs> hey, my bike doesn't work. You ruined my shoe. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you just got to tap that float bowl with the, the handle of the screwdriver. It's just a float. It's stuck. You can get it free. Um, I found the Makunis, they run lean in a good way, get crisp power, good throttle response. They make more power. They're new. You've got to consider, like, 
a carburetor is a wear item, and as much as everyone rebuilds their carburetors, they're still warm. Sure. Uh, and uh, I've, you know, we we get our carburetor kits from Bill at Rocky Point, and he jets them, and we tune them, and they work flawlessly. Yeah, he seems to be be the go to guy for the Makuni swap. Uh, and then finally, yeah. uh, kind of the big four things there. Just talk a little bit about what you guys are doing suspension-wise. Uh, and let's maybe just start. What are you doing from the triple tree down? Okay, so we have uh, a modern upside-down fork. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll either go with the Showa or the Olins. And the Olins are beautiful, and it's the way I would go on every bike. They're expensive and because of uh, all of the supply chain issues, near impossible to get hold of. So we're kind of forced to use the showers in some instances where, you know, clients more than prepared to pay for the Olins, but we just can't get them. Now, are you buying those new or sourcing used from a, a late model bike and another brand? Uh, the Olins come in new. Okay. And the, the showers uh, will typically get them used like 2017 up and rebuild them. So they're as new. Then uh, in order to make all that work and make it look like it belongs on the BMW, we have a, a custom triple tree CNC out of aluminum. Then a custom uh, aluminum front wheel hub so we can do a spoke wheel. The upside down forks take a, a Brembo radial caliper the handmade aluminum fender and bracket i'm looking at a bike now so i can sort of <laughs> oh, perfect yeah. yeah great great then uh previously we were using a, an aftermarket cnc headlight bracket and i just at first i thought it was fabulous and then i sort of came up with the idea to take the original I feel like the original headlight bracket is such a key design cue of the of the bike, so I wanted to get it back. So we're now fabricating a uh, an R seventy five slash five looking fork gear that fits over the top of the upside down fork in oh. between the triples. Yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah, you're right. Yeah. I mean, that is a great design element of that uh, era. Hundred percent. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Combine that with the slash five headlight bucket, and then the key. Everything is kind of swooping together. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we got that back. So the the latest batch of bikes are all getting those special fork ears. And then, so the steering head and the frame uh, up up there, no alterations there, and standard uh, BMW st- uh, style and size uh, bearings. Yes. Uh, if anything. Um, I wouldn't describe it as gusseting, but reinforcement in the in the factory bracing on the neck. Okay. That's what we do. All right. Um, and that happens in fab at the first stages. And then on the rear, uh, Olin's only offers uh, the BM141 for the BMW. So we've had uh, Olin's making us some custom... BMW, well, Rothschild-specific shocks that are fully adjustable and available in all colorways. Oh, okay. That's nice. Uh, and so, the, and those are typical 
uh, eye to eye height, maybe a little bit taller than standard. Yeah, I mean, because they're making them, they're, yeah. they're setting them up for us, so they're the right length. And the only, uh, I'm going to say the only criticism, but no real criticism. It's just uh, they're three or four times the price of the stock ones, so you have to really want it. <laughs> yeah. Since this program launched in March of 2022, we've heard from a number of you telling us how much you enjoy it. So first off, thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who coincidentally are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal to add 200 new members and to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 listeners. The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Complete the online form and use the activation code AIRHEAD. 247. Or go to the description section in this podcast. We've popped a direct link right there. We want to say thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America and thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast, where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the activation code AIRHEAD247. And that's something, it seems like uh, with the bikes you're building, not that a customer couldn't necessarily request something else, but it sounds like you've got these dialed in. You know what works on the bike. This It's not like, hey, this is what you get, but uh, it's more in lines of this is how we've spec'd out this bike. You know, like you say, maybe yeah. there's a different color or something you want, but those are going to be pretty much standard on your builds. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm, I've always told my customer that even our entry-level bike is already supposed to be the best bike. There's no, there's nothing you can do from this point, or you won't find anything else that's going to be better than this. But if you have specifics in mind, tell me, and let's see if we can incorporate them into the best bike. So I've got one guy that bought his R65 to me. And again, that kind of goes against all the rules. Let me supply the donor. And I would inevitably say, let's not use an R65 as a donor. Um, too many unique model-specific parks. But, yeah. You know, this, bike yeah. Kept, this, bike, this bike kept sentimental value to him. So he was like, yeah. well, I love what you build, but I want to use this bike in particular. Can you make it work? And... Uh, I said yes, because I say yes to everyone, and it's it's not efficient to do something like that, but we are making his R65 work with all the other stuff that we've already developed to work with the other frames. So now we can use R65 as donors as well. All right, let me ask you this. I don't want to sound like, uh, you know, I'm a shill for rough child here, or, you know, we're trying to do an hour-long commercial, but 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 for folks who might be hearing about this for the first time or you know thinking you know 
gosh, you know, this sounds pretty cool, but it sounds really expensive. Um, did you sort of allude there to the fact that you've kind of got some different level bikes, meaning, you know, you don't necessarily have to get one that's at the highest price point. You've got some entry level bikes. And, and if so, are though, how, how are those comparable with, you know, like a new, a new bike, if somebody to just go out and buy a, a 2022 yeah. price wise. I'd say our entry level bike is still pretty expensive um, compared to what you can buy new from BMW. So our entry level bike is twenty seven thousand dollars at the moment. Okay. And this, you know, the pricing comes from you can buy a a, a snotty bike off Craigslist for three or four thousand dollars. I'm you know more than aware of that's what our donors start as sometimes you know. And uh, you can do that, and you can break down most of the times you take it out, and you send it to the shop, and, you know, you fix it, you fix it again, and slowly but surely, your bill's going to come in, and you've spent 20 grand, like, rebuilding your bike. Easily. The idea is that do it once, do it right, go ride, have nothing but a good time, don't be sat on the road crying, side of the road crying, and I can give you a better product if we do it all at once, then if you, if you try and go off on your own and, and even down to guys customizing their bikes on their own, I have people contacting me for advice and sort of urgent, like either keep it stock or, or buy it from me. I don't think you, you, I know for a fact you can't do it as well as me and be on budget. You're going to spend far more than you anticipate. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because inevitably you're going to be just having to outsource more jobs to more people. Absolutely, uh, yeah. And I'm, it's just, yeah. So, okay, well, that's interesting. So if we say, uh, and again, not to uh, run an advertisement here, but, you know, okay, so 27 GUR uh, for an entry-level bike, you know, that's what a new uh, GS, uh, top-of-the-line GS costs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... It depends what you buy your motorcycle for, but mm -hmm. I would stand firm that mine's more fun than a new GS. I would, uh, you know what? I would probably not having ridden one. I, I still would agree with you a hundred percent there. Um, all right, so I want to pick your brain on just a couple other uh, things here. So in these, you, we were talking about you know your reimagined bike, uh, but I've also seen uh, you've been on. You were an early adopter of bring a bring a trailer, I, I think, oh, yeah. uh, going back to yep. 2018. Uh, and so a couple things in that regard. So obviously, let's start out by saying you've got a, still got a soft spot for a nice, original, classic airhead. I've seen you uh, buy and sell them. Absolutely. I'm an enthusiast. I'm an enthusiast and a collector. And this, this business has to be run by a maniac that just loves all things. <laughs> Automobile, okay? I collect cars. I collect motorcycles. If there's a good bike, I'm not going to chop it up. I can't. It's sacrilegious. There's, there was a time in my life when I, I needed to because I needed to deliver the product. And, you know, as time's gone on, I've managed to put aside good bikes that, that deserve to be saved. And my shop is divided into three. One side is all cars. The other side is all motorcycles, but the motorcycle thing is divided into two. So we've got a workshop, and then at the back, just all original bikes are stashed. Oh, wow. And 
And uh, they'll come in as a donor, and I'll look at it, and I'm like, God damn, this has still got original fasteners. It's got the original zip ties from the factory. But these, this is this is worth saving. Let's do it right now. I, I, I picked up this. Uh, an R, it was a 1972 R75-5 toaster in curry, original paint, original everything. And this thing came in filthy. And honestly, I cleaned it, and it looked five years old. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So just kind of slowly gone through it. It's a, it's a side project, saving the old stuff, right? So getting some wheels rebuilt. It's kind of off, just happening in the background. Um, had to reupholster the seat, just the, the basic stuff to keep it nice. Yeah, and uh, what else uh, of the of that uh, other <clears throat> area in your shop there? What else uh, catches your eye and makes you do a double take when you're walking through there? Um, I have a few older bikes. I got two R50 slash twos, both original paint. One's got the sport tank. One's got the small tank. I have an R69s with the sport tank, um, R80GS, R65LS. Mm-hmm. Be surprised to hear that. I think that's a beautiful bike. Yeah. I really do. I just in red, red or silver? Which color? Yeah, yeah. in red. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm not really sure what to do with that because, like, it doesn't it doesn't have the power that I like, and I just love the look of it. Um, what else is back there? A couple of R100 RSs are still kicking around. I sold a couple of those on Bring a Trailer, and they were they went down well. So I'll probably list another one. Yeah, I so said those uh, those blue ones. So well, let's get back into that. So as I mentioned, you were an early adopter. Uh, I think 2018. I went back before we got on the on the telephone here and just sort of looked at your history there. So 2018, uh, maybe a dozen or so cars and bikes. So some BMW. Uh, 2002s, some 911s and stuff like that, but uh, you were an early adopter. So tell me, this is a broad question. When you first got on and sold a vehicle versus as we talk today, how's how's the dynamic changed as a seller? Um, if at all. Bring a, yeah, bring a trailer is a tough marketplace. I think that as a public forum, there was a little more, there was a bit more respect amongst commenters from potential buyers to sellers back in the day. Uh, now there's, there's like a few people that troll it and, and just, I think there's, there's one too many comments where the seller is assumed guilty until proven innocent. And, I don't know. I just don't think you should do that. I think if there's a, if you're asking a question about something you want to buy, then you have every right to ask it. I, I, that's all I've noticed from, as time's gone on, I think you need to have thicker skin to be on Bring a Trailer. Indeed. And certainly the wait time. The lead time on it is crazy. Like, I've, I've waited two or three months to get stuff up on there. Oh, really? You have to really, you have to really be committed. And then they might not even accept it. So, um, They've always accepted everything I've listed, but I, you know, I kind of know what what they want on the side. Sure, sure. Well, and I want to 
mention something. Yeah, about the the comment section can be, uh, it's a it's a two sided coin, a double edged sword, whatever analogy uh, you want to mm. use. Um, folks who are on there on a regular basis know there are some uh, some great commenters on there, some great people who contribute, uh, who have a lot of yeah. knowledge and can help you know establish the provenance of a vehicle or point something out. Uh, or just have a, a intelligent conversation about something. And then, of course, as there is with the Internet, there's always, you know, quote, unquote, that mm. that guy. Um, <clears throat> my personal take on it is I this I may be painting with a really broad brush here, but <clears throat> I tend to think it's more jealousy uh, of people who want to comment on those because. For whatever reason, you know, maybe they're not able to afford a motorcycle like that, or uh, yeah, maybe. It, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't wanna... know what it is, but there, when when you feel the need to to sort of soil somebody's auction like that unnecessarily, there's some other issues going on there. Just you know, besides being a contrarian in the comment section. Absolutely, and then looking back on it after the auction, you're like, oh, I, I might have overreacted. <laughs> I well, said it shut up and, and just let it slide down the comment section so it was invisible. But I didn't. I threw fuel on the fire, and it's like it made it worse. Well, uh, you know, we're the the infamous uh, what what it, the infamous spline lube or whatever comment. I guess that's what we're talking about. And there there have been some <laughs> yeah, other fine. ones on there. Uh, you know, there was a guy that had a bike with a Kickstarter that was uh, sticking out like a broken leg. That uh, I just remember oh, yeah. he assumed it was fine, and I was just like, you know. All I did was I I rarely comment in there, but my comment was just, hey, you know, congratulations on the auction, great job for everybody. The Kickstarter still ain't right. You this know? is why the comment section is totally valid. I've been I consider myself a knowledgeable enthusiast about this stuff. It's my job to be knowledgeable, and right. I've had my ass schooled on there. Like there's some stuff where someone's come out of the woodwork that knows something I don't. I'm like, <laughs> wow, who are you? And where are you? Like, <laughs> Come here and tell me everything you know. <laughs> well, that's great. Yeah, that, that's a nice. It really, it's, it's, it's a great platform, and I'm a huge fan. I got I got stuff coming up. Um, I got a BMW 700 coupe that's going to go through soon. Um, can't think well. Some I've got listed. I think that's the only one. So, what's your take on how? Uh, and, and I think this sort of goes back to what I was saying about where you've got people commenting on there, you know, who may have a bone to pick or something for whatever reason. But in your now, you've been doing this for a while. How do you see this? How do you see the bring a trailer, if we can call it a, a phenomenon? That might be a, a bit of hyperbole there. But how is it uh, affecting the pricing market in the collector? realm which is a lot of the guys oh. you deal with but then also yeah. with the casual hobbyist and and, and when i mentioned that because i think there are a lot of guys that's why they're like oh you know fuck this shit man all they're all they're doing is driving <laughs> up prices of bikes i can't buy anymore and honestly it's wild it's wild it's a gold rush yeah. I, it's not sustainable either i mean collect the car market that balloon is guys oh, pretty big right now i mean i've watched like I said in the beginning, I've watched these cars go from being six thousand dollars to two hundred grand. Yeah, like I, I don't know. I mean, maybe the market will correct itself. I can't imagine it's going to go down a lot, but it has to take a dip. It has to. And as far as 
bring a trailer. Like, yes, they are directly responsible. I, uh, it's made it hard to buy donors, if anything else. Like, hey, I want to buy cars for fun. Yeah. But for business, I need, to, I need to buy bikes. And I'll speak to these people. I, you know, I've got different ways of finding motorcycles, and everyone's heard of bring a trailer. So, hey, I know what I've got. I'm going to put it on here and get 15 grand. You can't have it for five. It's <laughs> exactly right. And you always see in the comments, somebody's like, you know, oh, well, I guess I should uh, list my uh, 1980 R87 now for $15,000. Yeah, you, know, right. you uh, absolutely should. Yeah, let's see it. It's <laughs> funny, but if, you, if, if you cruise like Facebook Marketplace just to see what's available, some of the like crazy prices that people try and get. Like, you, you can list it for that much, but you're not going to get it. No. <laughs> just leave it there. Well, and it sounds like it's really probably for you and for anybody, really, that's just looking to buy, you know, ride and enjoy is, like you said, you're shopping the sellers. Uh, you're wanting to find an enthusiast who's taking care of the bike, who's ready to move on from it for whatever reason, but knows what the real value is and is prepared to offer it for a, a reasonable price. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, I've had to explore different avenues to, to buy motorcycles. I found that uh, it has to be offline. Yeah. <laughs> As much as I, as much as I do find some bikes online, and I'll jump on them and just and buy them and, and roll the dice. A lot of it is word of mouth. I got spotters across the country, people I've bought bikes from in the past, shippers, um, and you just kind of have to grease the palms along the way, and then the good stuff makes its way to you. Yep, yep, that's exactly how it goes. Uh, all right, Robert, uh, a few more topics, and then we'll we'll let you get out of here. One thing we kind of skipped yep. over when we were talking about sort of the component builds or component changes that you do in your builds, I wanted to ask you what the, and again, this might, this is a pretty open-ended question, but specifically yeah. with the airheads, what is the, when you're doing the mods, uh, modifications, updating, upgrading, what, what have you found with your bikes was, has been the sort of trickiest thing to either dial in or, or, or correct uh, to get to your build quality or standard? That is a big open-ended question, yeah. and the real answer is that it's time and error and sort of learning what works together to make the most enjoyable ride. Um, and that sounds silly, because you would think that giving something the most amount of power would make it the most fun. It's not. And uh, sometimes there's a fine balance. You want to, there's a good in-between, and our base build is that. So if you want to change, so a customer can only go so wrong by changing, insisting on changing some stuff. They're always going to be very right with what they've got. Uh, with, um, man, like, there's really not, there's not much to go wrong with. They make more power than original. They have better brakes than original. And in my opinion, then kind of what the, the stats say, they're more reliable. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I like, going over every, you know, talk, as we've discussed, all the different components you've added, um, you know, the only other thing I could, not the only other thing, but, you know, I was thinking, okay, and you addressed this was, well, you know, maybe there's, some changes to the frame, 
uh, the, uh, a, a beefier, you know, fork brace or as San Jose used to do, reinforce uh, the rear sw- well, the swing arm and stuff because, like that? Yeah, I've done the reinforced swing arm and I didn't feel it. Um, and in terms of bracing the front end, because we do the modern front end swap and it's a custom triple, when you look at the factory airhead triple tree, at least from up to 80, what was that, 80, 84, where it's just a thin piece of steel on top, like you need the brace. Yeah. But with mine, it's, it's two inch thick CNC aluminum upper and lower with the upside down fork, like there's no flex. You, you don't need a brace. It's a hundred times stiffer than the original. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Oh. Okay. Uh, and in terms of, Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, in terms of in terms of San Jose braces, uh, I take them off. Yeah. I'm not a fan. I, I I I don't think it feels right. As much as I don't think that the steering dampener feels nice too. Yeah, that's just a, a period correct accessory that you keep on a bike because that's the way it came. I, I don't know that they yeah, yeah. they don't yeah. really serve. Uh, you know, I can think of one time in my 30 plus years when I used the steering damper, mm-hmm. and uh, it was not under it. I wouldn't advise anybody to do this, but I was on, uh, I was on the interstate. Uh, it was early in the morning. Uh, and I had a six pack of beer on the back of my slash five and it made it easy to where I could just lock the steering and reach back and, uh, grab a beer and continue down the highway. Oh, uh, attaboy. Yeah. I was much younger. I mean, I was 21 years old, so. Did you have a, a babe in a bikini? N- no, the, no, no, no. That was just uh, me and a buddy uh, crisscrossing the country when I didn't know a whole lot better. Sounds good. Yes. Okay, so we've been asking everybody kind of four questions to finish out the interview, um, and we've uh, gotten some interesting and diverse responses, as you might imagine. So the first one is, uh, I don't think this uh, analogy is lost on you, but uh, the Mount Rushmore of airheads from 1970 to 1994, the four most influential. Oh, all right. That's fairly, I'm going to make it four favorite as opposed to influential. Th- that's so fine. That's yeah. Uh, 77R100 RS. That's a great analog spike that made power and felt raw. Um, I just wasn't a fan, and I'm still not a fan of the goofy um, fairing, but it's kind of, it's aging well, and it sort of like offends me less and less as time goes on. Maybe I'm just getting older as opposed to the design changing. Uh, and then I would go R75 slash 5, short wheelbase or long wheelbase. I don't mind, just in terms of a, a styling Everything is perfect on that bike. Then where do I go? I go R80GS. I think that's the only bike that BMW made that came from the factory and still looks perfect to this day. Uh, There's nothing I want to change on it. It it feels great. It rides great. It looks great. People love it. That's, That's the best bike that BMW made. You know what? And your website bears that truth because... That's the one bike uh, you feature on there that's really not been modified. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're a passion of mine. Yeah, I've, I've I've restored and brokered the sale of maybe fifty wow. over over like eight years. Good grief! 
Yeah, I've had a lot of them. And like whenever one popped up on the market, I bought it always. There, yeah. there was a time when you could never get one because I had it. Well, okay. I, <laughs> so I just bought one at, did you see the one for sale in Montana late last year? Uh, did I mention I had a baby recently? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm excused for being a bit slack, but what did, what did you buy out of Montana? Yeah, yeah. So there was an 84 that a guy uh, had for sale in Montana. He put it up, you know, right around Christmas time, and yeah. <clears throat> which, of course, winter's not a good time to sell a bike. Winter in Montana, Montana, Missoula, Montana, yeah. not a great time to sell a bike. I called the guy up. Offered him um, a fair amount, you know, off what he was asking. He accepted right away, and I drove out there and, and picked it up. What did you, What did you pay for that thing? Uh, Seven thousand. Oh, amazing! Yeah, hold it. Yeah, that was goodbye. Man, I'm really pissed about that. <laughs> That's why I mentioned it. I thought I might get your goat there, but um, my mother-in-law lives in Missoula, Montana. Oh no! Well, how did the envelope? Yeah, it was on. Uh, well, I'll tell you why. You may not have seen it. Uh, the story was, uh, I'm on adventure rider a lot on the airhead forum there. And somebody just, you know, put, Hey, you know, did you see this bike for sale? It was in the MOA advertisements, but it was oh, not, it, yeah, it, sure. but it was not in the classic airheads. It was just in the general GS. So it was lumped in with all the new bikes. And uh, I guess it didn't get a lot of eyes or interest that way. Somebody just happened to post it on ADV, and I, you know, went in and scooped it up. So, son of a gun! Did that the, the the original tank on it or a carry back arm? Yeah, it's an original uh, dark blue. Uh, about oh, right, single blue. Yeah, twenty five about twenty five thousand miles. Uh, it's been mechanically well maintained. Uh, there was this uh, mechanic, I think, uh, out in Oregon where the guy used to live called Murphs, uh, somewhere on the uh, north northwest out there, and had uh, a good stack of receipts. You know, they'd done the rear main seal and, you know, spent some, spent some money going into the bike, that kind of stuff. Uh, and uh, cosmetically, it's a little bit challenged. It looks like it, it, it was ridden as it was intended uh, to, be, yeah. to be ridden. Uh, but it's still... It's a, you know, great bike at a great price. Pretty much Absolutely. all all original parts. So the, um, la the last one I bought, I paid five thousand for, and it was a it was a boxer part. Wow! So I, so I feel like seven for a complete running motorcycle is just daylight robbery. I, look, I mean, we drove out there, couldn't believe it. We made it in the m middle of January uh, from the Ozarks all the way out to Montana, nary a drop of snow. Uh, and the bike ran well, yeah, ran fine. We got to the Grand Canyon and tootled around the Grand Canyon, went down to Arizona and, you know, just had a great winter motorcycle ride. Uh, I mean, it, it all worked out well. And I, I learned that there are dis now, uh, dispensaries scattered all across the Western United States. So I took advantage of that as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was a new thing on me. I thought they were all medicinal, but, uh, you know, I've been out in the woods in Arkansas so long. I don't keep up with stuff. All right. So we got as far as the ADGS. I guess we could probably do a whole show on that. But uh, so those one, two, three. So what would your last one be? Um, not necessarily the whole bike, but I would say R100R. I'm mm. a big fan of the drivetrain. Yep. Um, I'd, I'd scout that and stick it in anything else. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think you like the frame. So. 
I'll take an all 100 off. Yeah, oh, and it'd be neat to see what, uh, you know, the rough child treatment on a bike like that. Ha, ha, ha. Coming soon. <laughs> right? We've, yeah, we've finished it. So we took a early R75 slash 5 frame with a 1969 foil sticker bin plate. Uh-huh. And we put a 1993 R100R drivetrain in it. Oh, yeah. And back backdated the cases so that it looks early. Smooth transmission case. Yep. Smooth time and, time and color. And what did we do? We did uh, a long rod kit from Richard Moore, Twin Spark, Delorto's, and um, I forget what else. Well, wow. we haven't we haven't revealed that bike to the public yet, but it's coming soon. Excellent. So that's something we can keep an eye. That's yeah. not a customer bike. That's one you'll just sort of be unveiling. Oh, uh, no, no, customer bike. Um, that was a a blank checkbook offering. Do the best you can do, and you can design it, choose it, do whatever you want. And uh, that client came to see it, and then promptly ordered two more. So wow. that kept me busy. Good for you. Good for you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, next question. Uh, your best or worst uh, roadside breakdown and or repair. So something has just gone horribly wrong and you saved it or something went horribly wrong and it turned into even more of a disaster. Um, you know, I, the only story that ring comes to mind Matt at Euromoto Electric is going to hate me, <laughs> but I'm sorry, Matt. I love you, and I love Euromoto Electric. Hey, they're, they're, they're great. Yeah. Let's just say, great parts supplier, great customer service. I order from I'm them regularly. Say, yes. they're, they're proven to be the best. Out of everyone in the country, it just gets done. Like, you don't have to worry about it. It's coming. Right. However. However. I'm not crazy about the ignition system. And we did used to use it. Uh, and I've just had modules fail on me too many times. And there's no saving it. I've broken down like primetime Malibu on a Sunday and I'm in a parking lot and people are coming over to admire the bike. Like, wow, look <laughs> at this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's not running right now. Uh, <laughs> you get like, you can impress people with how quickly you can whip the gas tank off. Like, yeah, it's, it's, I know it's a module. Um, but yeah, no saving it. You're going home on a tow truck. No, no, that's right. Okay, so nothing really uh, too terribly dramatic or anything in that regard. No, nah, really not. I mean, it's, uh, having I used to daily ride original bikes all of the time, and I was just younger and and stupider and i jumped on one and the the kickstand didn't retract and on that particular day i didn't think to check it but the first left turn i made i flew off that bike like superman on Hollywood <laughs> that's great and i was embarrassed but yeah. the truth is like there were, there were 20 people around me making sure i was okay and i was so embarrassed i literally just picked the bike up and went on my way and it was fine like i messed up the valve cover no, that's yeah, that's a small thing. Yeah, I'm, the first bike I bought when I was in in college uh, was a Honda CB five fifty, like an early seventies one. Man, I was so yeah, yeah. I was so stoked. You know, here I am, nineteen, twenty years old, and I was feeling really good about myself, Robert. I mean, I was 
I'll, I'll, I'm not going to lie. I was feeling good. So, I bet. yeah. So I ride up to the college green uh, and I'm like, oh, yeah, motorcycle parking only. Man, how cool is this? I got my own bike now. It's nine o'clock, you know, a little after nine o'clock. First classes are starting. I pull up and I you know, kind of forgot about the side stand. So I just got off the bike and it just fell over on me. Oh, and, no. Oh, yeah. And uh, boy, I went from feeling really good about myself to feeling like a complete yeah. idiot. Uh, and actually a couple, a couple girls came over and helped, helped lift it off, helped lift it off me. It was pretty embarrassing. Uh, uh every cloud picked up some chicks. With yeah, device. right, right, right. But, uh, anyway, okay. Um, next one, the one design change you would go back in time, tell the BMW engineers between 70 and 95, don't do this under penalty of death. Oh. Uh, my gushing answer would be would be in 1995. Don't stop. Let's just keep it going. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like you don't be silly now. Like, let's not abandon this. Let's just see how we can make it better. Because I still think they would sell more bikes if they sold airheads, and they don't. If uh, if I had to criticize an actual design change, um, I think. 85, the whole monoshock thing, the sort of like, we're, and we've embraced it. Like I said, I love the R80 GS, and I've built bobbers out of 85 to 88 uh, monoshock bikes. I just, uh, I like the symmetry. I feel like the boxer engine looks best in a, a symmetrical format. So dual shock, dual exhaust, everything's flowing and lovely. A monoshock bike with that very special-looking engine with horizontally opposed pistons sticking out the sides. I, I don't think monoshock lends itself that well to it. The uh, 80GS notwithstanding. 80GS is different yeah. because they kind of went they went so goofy with it with this, like, exhaust, the muffler that followed the shape of the frame, and you really can't see the shock. No, no, it's buried. If you, if you look, if you if you look at the uh, R80 GS prototype bikes and the IFDT, they were doing uh, an extended swing arm with dual shocks, and everyone will, everyone wants one of those. That's a good so point. I think if only it only would have enhanced the R80 GS if it was a dual shock bike. Interesting. All right. Um, now, I should make one of them. <laughs> there you go. Uh, all right. Last question. Uh, everybody wants to know. What oil does Roughchild use in his airheads? Oh, uh, okay. So I've always been a fan of Motul Classic. They do a high zinc, 20 watt 50. It comes in, well, gee, it used to come in these nice metal oil cans up to recently. And uh, so I was putting that in everything. I was putting in customer bikes. And I, you know, later find out that they're topping it off with, uh, other oils because the motor isn't readily available. So customer bikes is going out with uh, Valvoline VR1, I think, 20 watt 50. It's uh, readily available every parts store. And the thing, as long as you school everyone that, that you need the cushioning effect of zinc, 
uh, fine, and you don't want to mix oils because of the acidity. So I know I've, I've tried them all. Like I like Brad Pan, and they're they're semi synthetic. Yep. Somebody mentioned that. That's a great oil. It's just again, like you're trying to. For me in particular, I'm trying to eradicate user error, make it easy. I've taken engines apart that have been a rebuilt engine that was running VR1, and then it's come apart a couple of years later for whatever reason. Upgrades. And it looks clean and new, so I'm I'm an advocate of it. Okay, that's good news. Well, hey, look, that's the only only the second consensus among uh, folks we've interviewed for the program. David Lee was the other one uh, on the VR one, and coincidentally, that's what I used as well. So uh, we are three of a kind there. Everybody else to date has given a, a different answer. Uh, for- I, owe, I owe David Lee in the highest regard too, so and he's a friend. Yes, indeed. <laughs> as, long as, as long as we're doing the same, I'll, 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 I'll stick to my guns. Like, <laughs> BR1 is the best, people. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Uh, okay, so uh, folks want to get in touch with you, roughchild.com. Is that right? That's absolutely right. That's how it sounds, roughchild. And they'll, there they'll find an email address, and you're also on Instagram, at roughchild. Yeah, I try and use the same username for everything. So sure. if you see at Rothschild, that is me. Yep, just type those, uh, type that word into your uh, goggle machine and you'll come up. Well, look, Robert, uh, it's been really great visiting with you today. I've really been impressed uh, with your builds. Uh, it was fun to visit with you today and keep up the great work. Yeah, thanks for having me. I, really, I consider it an honor and a privilege to be included in this. So thank you. Okay, take thanks, care. Man. Okay, see you. Bye-bye. Bye. Much thanks to Robert, and be sure to check out all his offerings and what's going on at roughchild.com. We've linked that in the description section of this podcast. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.